I was looking at the title of the book that was on my table and thinking that I thought the title was totally misleading. And then I was concerned about a guy outside of our house walking past as he was berating his partner or whoever it was that he was walking with. And I realized in the space of just a few seconds, I was sitting in judgment of several people <laughs> that I'd never met. Uh, oh, how we love to judge. Not talking here about disagreeing about the things I was seeing. It was actually about the negative feelings I had um, towards uh, four people, really, effectively, that I'd never met. Um, we love to judge. And judging from the sofa is so tempting and so easy. And I've been thinking that during this pandemic, we've got so many armchair critics and judgments up and down the country. And I guess I would count myself as one of those. I guess if we were to ask any politician, maybe doctor or scientist, every time they say something about the pandemic, there's probably, I don't know, 50 million people sat on their sofa somewhere casting judgment. As I said, it's okay to disagree with one another, but so often we go beyond disagreeing and we form a negative view about the person that uh, uh, we're maybe giving the message or whatever. But on the other hand, I'm not so um, smug when I think about um, people judging me, of course, and, and you may feel the same. Of course, it's, it's no problem at all with anyone disagreeing with us, but it is really hard when people judge us, especially if they don't really know us or know our heart or know what we're doing. It's really hard if, you think, if we think we're being judged. Uh, we do it and we're often on the receiving end of it. And it can be quite tough. And so actually the phrase that we're, um, the sentence that we're, we're picking up this morning, as Jim has said, from the Apostles' Creed, um, is probably one of the scariest subjects of all, really, and that's about judgment. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. So we're thinking about Jesus coming to judge the living and the dead. And it's not actually an easy subject. And it's not one that anyone, I think, would immediately choose to talk about. And I say this partly because it's a subject where opinions are quite strongly held. And so you might not agree or necessarily um, share or enjoy what I might share today. That's OK. Um, that's not a problem. I just want to open this really important subject up so that we can all this morning, and, and I've been doing this, think about what is our own view? Where do we stand with this? You see, because it's really important when we recite the Apostles' Creed and really mean it, then we're affirming these words. And so if we're affirming these words over our lives and over the lives of our family, then we'd be silly not to think about really what it means. And this is more of a, um, a complex area, but let's open up a bit of it this morning and see how we do. The first thing I think about is how does this image of judgment that we read in this, in this creed compare with our favourite images of God as a, as a loving and forgiving and kind father? How do we come to, the term, to terms with the fact that Jesus has not just ascended and is reigning with, with the Father in heaven right now, but that he's coming to judge? And I think is Jesus and are Jesus and the Father planning something over my life right here and now? Who knows? And perhaps all of this really is a sobering thought. And in a sense, Judy was hinting at this earlier about how we live our lives and a reminder that what we do now really matters. I was reading um, uh, Dostoevsky, I can never say his name, but the famous Russian writer Dostoevsky, you'll probably know it. Anyway, um, he writes 
um, that if there is no God and no judgment, then everything is permitted. Now, I don't know about you, but that sense of that everything is permitted is, is something that doesn't work for me. That can't be right. So therefore, could it be that the judgment of Jesus is good news? Could it be that it's even great news? Maybe it's because there will be a conclusion to history. God finally setting things right, bringing the peace and the restoration that we are all so longing for in our world. And also, if you think about it, isn't it good news that Jesus is to be the judge? Because to be honest with you, if I am going to be judged by anyone, I'm quite happy that I'd be judged by Jesus. As Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, uh, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. I love that. So we're understanding maybe the one who comes to judge is the one who was judged in our place. It feels okay in a way because we're already beneficiaries of what Jesus did on the cross. And now we're in this time where we're waiting to meet the one who has brought us this freedom. This is good news. You see, from the very start of Christianity, there's been a strong belief that one day Jesus will come again and take the role of judge. But of course, we live in a kind of post-liberal world where the thought of judgment is seen as quite negative. But we need to remind ourselves that the Bible consistently describes this judgment as a good thing. Uh, the psalmists rejoice over judgment being good. Uh, there's one verse, and I think it originates in Isaiah, people will shout for joy, and the trees in the fields will clap their hands. Whatever that means, I'd love to see a tree clapping its hands, but I get the point. Everything will be rejoicing. And you see, to me, to be honest, we live in a world where, frankly, uh, and again, Judy was touching on this earlier, where there's systematic prejudice, there's systematic in, uh, systemic injustice, there's bullying, there's violence, there's abuse, there's arrogance, there's poverty, there's oppression, there's greed. And actually, there's now a reckless regard for our natural environment. So for me, it's somewhat appealing that one day someone is going to come and put all of this right. Isn't it reassuring that in a world that's so full of greed, prejudice, and exploitation, is not actually ignored or forgotten by God? God has not ignored it. He's not forgotten it, and he's coming again. In the Old Testament, uh, Daniel 7, um, we see the Gentile nation as a monster, and the people of Israel as a kind of defenseless race. And the scene is a court where the Ancient of Days takes his seat and finds in favour of the Son of Man. And we see this idea played out many times in the Old Testament. If you've got 10 minutes today, grab your Bible and have a read of Daniel 7. It's really good. And then if we zip forward to the New Testament, we find, of course, that Jesus himself takes on the role of the Son of Man who is suffering and then is vindicated. Then if we go on a bit further in the New Testament to Revelation, 
we see John recalculating, in a sense, Daniel's time and linking it to the Exodus journey. In other words, those who follow Jesus are living uh, free in a new promised land, on a journey where we'll meet Jesus face to face. And of course, this isn't so much about a physical place to live, but it's the people will be a community who are safe and transformed. And scripture, of course, is abundantly clear throughout that if we follow Jesus, we'll actually become more like the place we are heading. So in in that case, judgment shouldn't cause us any unnecessary or major fears. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with an ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is spirit. So you see, to me, the second coming is not an afterthought to the Christian message. Although, to be honest, um, I think it's been massively misunderstood and often misdescribed or misapplied in church life. That's my view. Often the idea of Jesus coming again as a judge is pushed to the margins of our day-to-day life. But, you know, if we do that, I think we somehow misinterpret our mission and our church here at Elam Connect will quickly go out of shape if we lose sight of the fact that Jesus is coming. We kind of land in a place that holds an inward rather than an outward focus. See, it's incredibly tempting, particularly when we're in a community where we love one another, to hold an I'm all right, Jack mentality, uh, if you like, a sofa kind of Christianity that might uh, begin to form judgment about everything that's outside of that community. See, too often, I think we see church as a uh, sometimes critical of society and sometimes critical of post-liberal thinking, and sometimes we sit in judgment. Rather than opening the doors to every tribe, nation, and tongue, every person from every background and every situation, opening the doors and welcoming everyone. Isn't this why Jesus created his church and why he told us to leave the judging to him? (laughs) This is not kind of weak liberal Christianity. It's actually about a church being militant with God's love. And that becomes very focused if we think about Jesus coming again. Lord, protect us from that kind of mediocrity that can so easily creep in through our weakness and our indifference about your judgment. You see, Jesus is other than the church, and he's other than the rest of the world, even though he is present in both by the Holy Spirit. You see, the Lord's message is actually confronting the world right now in the present. And then, of course, he'll do so personally and visibly in the future. He is the only one to whom every knee shall bow, as it says in Philippians. But let's not fall into the trap of making the mistake that Jesus is going to come like some kind of spaceman and that he'll appear in our present world. You see, his transformation of the present world, ourselves with him, is what we will see and acknowledge. So as believers, we've got an amazing story to tell. It's got a beginning, it's got a middle, and it's got an end. And we mustn't forget that. And of course, it's important for us to grasp that the task of the church between ascension and Jesus' return 
is actually free from the pressure to build God's kingdom all by itself. Okay, we don't have to do that. It will be hopeless to think that we can build the kingdom uh, before Jesus returns because we just will not be able to do that. Scripture's quite clear. Jesus' message was quite clear. Paul builds on this. He says that our job between ascension and Jesus' return is to build for the kingdom. And what we do is to bring love, hope, and obedience and the power of the Spirit into our communities, whereby we begin to see lives and communities transformed one by one. Frustrating when it doesn't happen fast enough, but we remember that we're called to build for the Lord. And of course, this hints to a note of judgment, because as Paul writes in Corinthians, the day will disclose what kind of work each builder has done. So it's good news because we can now think outside of politics. We can think outside of world systems. We can even think outside of our own judgment and our own personal prejudices. You see, if we take seriously the fact that Jesus is Lord in the here and now, it changes the way that we look at his coming in due course. And we can be free from that kind of um, despair that we feel. I mean, I feel so despairing at times when our political systems and the systems of this world let us down. But actually, we can think beyond that because we are carrying a different message and a different hope. But of course, it's really hard to live this out in practice because we live in a world that totally dismisses the idea of Jesus' return. Be honest about it. Uh, I don't know the answer, but what I do know is that unless we point this out, we might give the impression that these doctrines don't matter. They do. Because people who already follow Jesus and already accept him as Lord of their life and are doing their best to work out their life in his way, and those who believe that he will come again, we're frankly called and equipped to live differently to perhaps someone who doesn't believe that. We carry something that we have to share. And whether we live this out is, of course, a matter of judgment. <laughs> okay, It's not for me to say about you or for you to say about me. This is a question that we actually have to ask ourselves and to be honest about. Uh, and so the, what, we, what we see in our own lives, in, in our own personal life and our mission, and also, of course, in the mission of the church that we love because we're part of that, and that brings with it a responsibility. It's not so much about building the church because... Actually, Jesus promises that he'll build his church. He's, he doesn't want us to feel pressured about that. What we're talking about here is our relationship with him, our obedience and our trust in him and his love and faithfulness in us as we build for the kingdom. And if we miss that, then I suspect that we'll have some difficult questions to answer in due time. There's a thought. I'm just going to pause now, actually, and uh, we're going to have a time just of reflection and for us to have a moment or two to think about, um, think about where we sit in this and to think about our views on this. And I'll come back shortly. Thank you so much, um, Sally Ann and Tony. I love that song. There's part of me that wants to say, let's sing it again. Um, but uh, maybe that's not possible. Maybe we can do that another time. Thank you both so much. So um, 
let's return to, to where we were. You'll have gathered that I firmly believe that the life and the mission of the church today has to reflect and be shaped by the future hope. The hope that comes not only from Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, but he's coming again to judge. It's really critical. Let's think for a minute about justice. Let's think for a minute about the beauty of the natural world that God's created for us. Let's think about the beauty and uniqueness of people. No two people alike. And the message of hope that we carry. Then for a moment, think about Jesus coming to set the world right. You see, the two things are part of the same whole. It's the message of hope and the new life revealed in Jesus' resurrection. And he's coming to complete what he started. And meanwhile, we've got work to do to build for him in anticipation of that and the decisions that he will make when he comes. It's the foundational message of the church, of course, but it's so often, I think, being obscured sometimes by, can I say, religious practices and sometimes inward, narrow thinking. It's all too easy for any community, and I mean this a church community too, to fall into a siege mentality when it feels threatened. And actually the church is often threatened by so many things that go on in and around the world and our communities. It can feel threatening. But we're not meant to pull up the shutters. We're not meant to just mix and worship with people of our own kind. You see, we've got nothing to fear because we carry the hope for the world. And that's not limited to the hope for the church. It's far bigger. I don't know about you, but so much injustice hangs over the world right now. Um, the pandemic is bad enough, but think about the injustice that surrounds it. When things collapse, we are understandably left with a sense of feeling let down and feeling entitled. The world owes me. I think often, you know, we have an over-exaggerated sense of entitlement. And I think we see it all around us, and we're all part of that. The world owes me. And we often get angry and blame other people when things are not going well. But actually, this isn't, isn't how communities should work and live. Part of the task for us as the church is to help people share these frustrations with one another and then to bring them to prayer. Okay, we bring these things to prayer. Then our task is to foster programs and projects, I don't know, for better affordable housing, for eliminating homelessness, for opening food banks, for building better schools, like, say, Oasis, the, the Christian uh, parachurch that's building all these wonderful schools and academies. Now they're taking over um, uh, youth offender institutions. It's the church moving in those things and in hospitals, creating job opportunities, promoting hope and justice. You see, we understand that when this is done, then the surprising gospel hope for life after death also becomes a hope of life before death. <laughs> but Stephen, you might say, are you not just 
preaching a simple social gospel? Well, the answer is no, because it is actually the only hope for our world. I don't know about you, but I'm deeply worried about the effects that the pandemic is having on the arts in the widest sense of the word. I think about poverty and, and, and poor communities, and I find it heartbreaking at the moment. But I'm also not naive, and I realise that a lot of the stuff we see on our TV screens is not really the real picture, and often it's not even real news. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But when we switch it off and look for ourselves and ask the Lord to guide us, the Spirit to guide us, then we see so much of what's going on around us in the world as, frankly, sordid and depressing. Yet we are custodians of the most beautiful world and creation. Why do we damage it? I mean, they say that the pandemic is a result of a crossover in humankind and the animal world. I don't know whether that's right or wrong, but... If that is right, then maybe we've made a connection that was never part of God's plan. This is what we do. So part of the role for us as Christians, surely, in a church community is to foster and sustain lives in a better way. Whether it's from supporting the arts, whether it's from building schools, whether it's building hospitals, for instance. We need to do more of this stuff and be influential in that in every area of our society. Do you know that the old cottage hospital that used to be in Wells, that's now housing, was actually built on land that was given by St. Thomas's Church, who also financially supported it. This is pre-NHS. Churches built hospitals. Many of our schools were built by churches and started by churches. Most of our village halls were built by church communities up and down the country. Um, and of course, historically, the church has been at the forefront of promoting the arts and music and so on and so forth. I believe that the church of today flourishes at its best when it's seen to be putting things right, <laughs> because this kind of evangelism is seen as a surprise. Do you know, here in Connect, it's been wonderful to hear people appreciate that we've put something right, <laughs> and then afterwards realize that we're a church. You see, to me, it's what Luke refers to in Acts when he describes the church as finding favor in the wider community, wider Roman community, as the believers went out onto the street to put things right. <laughs> Some of the places where there is the least hope is often where there's far too much money and perhaps cultures that have become too superior. In all of those communities, the message of Jesus Christ is good news and we have to get it out there and be influential in that. There's a new world. It's already begun. And it works with forgiveness. It works with healing. And it works with transformation. It comes about by people worshipping God and acknowledging that Jesus is Lord and then building for him in anticipation that one day he will come and complete our efforts. For me personally, my life changed dramatically, dramatically when I decided to accept Jesus and to do my best to journey in life by following him and following his ways. Soon after I made that decision, I was aware that I began to be filled with the Holy Spirit and I began to learn how to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in my day-to-day -day life and, 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 and you will be the same as me. This brought about many changes and continues to bring about many changes. 
But for me, it was later that I realized that the Gospels are not really about going to heaven when you die, although they are. But actually, there's really almost nothing written um, in the New Testament, uh, Testament about going to heaven when you die. But there's a lot written about being a citizen of heaven. Philippians 3, Paul writes, but, as, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I don't think being a citizen of heaven necessarily means that we're going to end up somewhere. You see, many of the Philippians were actually Roman citizens, but it didn't mean that they wanted to end up in Rome when they died. Their job was to bring Roman culture, Roman culture into Philippi. And this is the context, of course, in which Paul is writing. The point is that Jesus is risen and is seated with the Father, and the new world has begun. The world is already redeemed, and his followers have a new job. And this job is to bring heaven to birth in actual physical, physical reality on the earth right now. See, Jesus' resurrection is proof that God does miracles. Okay, God does miracles. And that the Bible is true. Paul speaks of going away and being with Christ, but his main emphasis is on coming back in the risen body to live in a newborn creation. God's project is not to zap us away in some kind of weird rapture, but instead is to colonize the earth with the life of heaven. I think that's somewhere hinted in the, new, in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? When Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians about the resurrection, he didn't say, let's celebrate the future that awaits us on Jesus' return. He ended up by saying, press on, press on, my friends, with your work, because work for the Lord will not be wasted. So when the final resurrection comes and Jesus returns, we'll discover everything we did today to put things right, to bring hope, to bring love, will be celebrated by him and transformed. You see, I don't think when the Lord returns, he's going to be checking our external appearance. I don't think he's going to be scanning our brains with one of those machines looking for bad thoughts. <laughs> what I think he might do is to examine our heart and the story of our lives. And what he'll be looking for, I believe, is signs of Christ-likeness. This might be the food we gave to a hungry person. It might be the mercy we gave to someone who had been unkind to us. It might be the warm bed that we gave to a stranger. It might be the many prayers that we made for others. You see, every act of love, every prayer, every deed done in Christ's name and empowered by the Holy Spirit, all true creativity, every time there is justice, whenever peace is made, whenever a family is healed, when a person's taken off the streets, when poverty is relieved, when temptation is resisted, when true freedom is won. This points back to what Jesus did for us on the cross, but crucially it points forward to the truth that one day he will come again and seal our work. You see, I think all of the unloving, non-Christ-like parts of our life, and I include myself in this, our unjust nations and communities, 
our unloving or, as it says in Revelation, unloving or lukewarm churches. All of this will be burned away and counted as unworthy and forgotten forever. So when, the, when, when we say with the writer of Hebrews that people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, we're not saying after that to face condemnation. <laughs> we're saying with John that to see God, to be in his unspeakable light, will purge us of all darkness. Amen. In a moment or two, um, Jim and Karen are going to pray um, with us and for us. And um, But before we do that, I want us just to pause for a moment or two, just to, to reflect on some of these things. And I'll just share a few sort of words in a ministry sense, if I can do that. It's Jesus who says in the words of Isaiah 49c, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's why those scars from the nails are still there. Every time he looks at his hands, he remembers you. He loves you and has not forgotten you and never will. Maybe today, and I confess I feel like sometimes you're nervous or unsure about Jesus' return, really understand what that might look like, perhaps. And for some of us, we might be anxious about it because of something we've, we, we've done or not done. It might be that there's someone in our life that we just, we just can't forgive, and we're worried about how we're going to explain that. Or maybe we're just worried because we haven't really, or we're not really sure that we're walking with Jesus at the moment or that we surrendered our life to him. We're not really sure about that, maybe. I don't know. But let me suggest that we, together now, across the internet, welcome the Holy Spirit right into our homes with us and into our hearts, right where we are, right now. And let's allow him to lovingly reveal the beauty and the love in our lives. Let's ask him to help us separate the past things that we've been unable to change. Let's remember that he loves you and he loves me. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us think of judgment of Jesus to be a good thing in our lives. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us believe that Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. And let us be filled with hope and joy not shame and fear. Help us to be inspired by the Spirit to go out into the world and put things right. Amen. <laughs>